Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Schold. I'm one of the pastors here at the church at West Creek. Um, I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Uh, you can find this on page 876 in the church Bibles. If you're wondering why Luke 16, uh, it occurs to me it's been a while since we've considered one of Jesus's parables. And the parable known as the rich man and Lazarus, it's just about the right length to cover in one Sunday. The parable starts in verse 19, but let me read verses 14 and 15 for context. Jesus has just concluded another parable by saying, you cannot serve both God and money. So verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that, in your, that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a brief prayer. Father, your word is always bright, but our minds and hearts are often dark. So illumine our minds, we pray, and warm our hearts that we'd be able to receive all the truth of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, when it comes to Jesus' parables, the rich man and Lazarus may not be the most well-known. Uh, I suppose the title for that one probably goes to the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. Uh, that said, the rich man and Lazarus 
may just be the most vivid parable that Jesus ever told. Because it's such a study in contrasts, isn't it? Riches and poverty, heaven and hell. You know, I was thinking about the contrasts this week, and a phrase came to my mind. Things aren't always what they seem. Things aren't always what they seem. Yes, that's from that jewel of cinematic history, Aladdin. Uh, in Aladdin, the Sultan's trusted advisor ends up being a traitor, while Aladdin, who's this poor uh, homeless orphan thief, ends up becoming basically Sultan. Things aren't always what they seem. True in Aladdin, true in this parable. Now, it's a dense parable, uh, but I think as we work through it, we'll see at least three major points emerge. First, Riches aren't always what they seem. Second, those bound for heaven aren't always who you think. And third, you can always trust the Bible to tell it like it is. Riches aren't always what they seem. Those bound for heaven aren't always who you think. But you can always trust the Bible to tell it like it is. I want to start by just getting our bearings in the book of Luke. Um, and from there, we'll go on to the parable. And in the parable, we'll see how Jesus warns his listeners to repent from seeking their true riches anywhere but in God. And as we'll see, this is a shift that is actually impossible from the grace, apart from the grace that Jesus offers. Well, first, riches aren't always what they seem. I wonder if you would agree with me that... Um, that the value of your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Would you agree with me on that? I, yeah, I, I hope so. I, I agree. For what it's worth, Jesus agrees too, because it's his statement. Um, that's Luke 12. You know, we all know Jesus is right there. There is more to our life than money. In the first 16 chapters of Luke, Jesus spends a lot of time warning about money, actually. Uh, for example, in the Beatitudes, in Luke 6, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And that's just what we see in the parable we just read, isn't it? We see poor Lazarus ends up being blessed, and the rich man, not so blessed. And at first glance, we might be a little confused by that. I mean, in the Beatitudes, is, is Jesus just giving us some version of poetic justice? Um, I mean, surely Jesus isn't saying that, you know, you go to heaven or hell just based on your tax bracket, right? <laughs> no, well, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, this has to mean, ultimately, that the poor are blessed insofar as their poverty clears the way for them to trust in God. And conversely, woe to the rich insofar as their riches end up being an obstacle to trusting in God. Yes, God has a special concern for the poor. We know that. But he does not automatically condemn the rich. Because remember what we read in Psalm 62. It says, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. That's the real question today, isn't it? 
What is your heart set on? And that can be a hard question to answer because our hearts are deceitful. But remember, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if you want to know where your heart lies, what your heart really treasures, you know, one thing we might try doing is to say the words, if only, and then see how your heart wants to finish that sentence. If only such and such were true or would happen, then things would be okay. Uh, two authors, Paul David Tripp and Timothy Lane, they even suggest that our if-onlys actually define our vision of paradise. Our if-onlys can give us clues about what our heart really longs for, for better or worse. Friends, I want you to think about your heart because your heart is what God cares about. Remember what God tells Samuel? Remember, Samuel's about to pick the next king of Israel, and he's really focused on, like, who's the tallest? But then God tells Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Now, on the outside, you and I may look more or less wealthy, but the Lord Jesus looks at our hearts. And Jesus knew the Pharisees' hearts, didn't he? With his x-ray vision, he knew that they loved money, just like Luke tells us. And in that love of money, Jesus knew that their hearts were dead towards God. Uh, now we have some medical people in the room. Um, if you're a doctor working in the ER and they rush someone in whose heart has stopped, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what they do on TV. <laughs> They get one of those defibrillators with the paddles, right? And, and they shock the person, you know? And, you know, in one sense, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it's kind of supposed to act like a defibrillator. A defibrillator for people whose hearts are dead because they love money instead of God. The parable is supposed to electroshock you into coherence. And Jesus is an expert physician, he knows right where to put those paddles for maximum effect. And so he tells a story to the effect that those bound for heaven aren't always who you think. Those bound for heaven aren't always who you think. The parable is in two scenes. Uh, the first scene is set at the earthly home of a nameless rich man. Well, the rich man lives in a house so big that it has a gate. Uh, but Lazarus lives at that gate. Oh, and by the way, just so we're clear, Lazarus, this is not the brother of Mary and Martha who Jesus raised from the dead. Lazarus is just a name that Jesus picks out. Lazarus lives at the gate. And what's more, it seems he may not be able to walk because he has to be placed at the gate, the text tells us. He's probably there seeking alms. Well, the rich man's clothes are made with expensive purple dye. Uh, in today's terms, that's like he shops at Armani. Um, he's just covered in fine linens, while Lazarus is covered in sores. Sores that probably make him ceremonially unclean. 
For the rich man, every day is like Thanksgiving. Now, think for a minute, it's Thanksgiving. What is your trash can like the night after the Thanksgiving feast? <laughs> right, you got the turkey carcass, wet, soggy stuff in the bottom. Lazarus would love that. Lazarus would love to be a dog and eat the table scraps. Except, you know what? Lazarus is actually lower than a dog because the dogs come to him to lick his sores. And by the way, these were not nice little house dogs. These were mean, tough street dogs. Finally, when the rich man dies, his body is treated with respect. The text tells us he's buried. And we might take that for granted. But look at Lazarus in verse 22. It doesn't say that he was buried. Who knows where his body ended up? So two men, one rich, one poor. And now Jesus has the defibrillator poised and ready to shock. Now, maybe you're wondering, what is the shock going to be? Um, an arrogant rich person going to hell, is that shocking? Um, I mean, you hear in the news today about like a billionaire who's gotten rich because he's been exploiting his workers, right? And people are just outraged. Oh, that, that man, that billionaire, he is going to hell. I mean, I don't really know if I believe in hell between you and me. But if I did, that man is going there, right? <laughs> the point is, people today don't automatically assume that the rich are on a fast track to heaven. But in Jesus' day, it was just a little bit different. Uh, back then, I think the default understanding was... If you're rich, you're probably blessed by God. Um, a rich man's probably someone important. I mean, think about how the disciples reacted with the rich young ruler. Remember, Jesus uh, says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The text says that the disciples were greatly astonished. And I think their astonishment shows that they must have seen the rich as somehow enjoying God's blessing on earth. And maybe that means that they were well positioned for heaven, too. You know, I wonder if the Pharisees heard about Lazarus, poor and covered in sores. I wonder if they thought about Job. Remember, Job, by Job chapter 2, Job is poor and covered in sores, just like Lazarus. And Job's friends thought that he was cursed by God. Is Lazarus cursed by God too? Well, here comes the shock. Because when Jesus discharges the defibrillator, it's Lazarus who goes to heaven while the rich man goes to hell. Those bound for heaven are not always who you think. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, this is all very nice and good, but we know where you're going, right? The way that you go to heaven is you put your trust in Jesus, right? So why don't we just skip forward to that and right, quit beating around the bush? Well, yes, that is how we are saved, faith in Jesus. But let me ask you, why doesn't Jesus just come right out and say that? If that's the truth, why doesn't he just come out and say it? Well, the problem is the Pharisees don't think they need to be saved in the first place. Why would you tell someone who doesn't think they, that they need to be saved 
how to be saved if they have no understanding what their actual predicament is. You know, maybe you're here today and you don't think that you need to be saved either. Let me tell you a little story. Once there was a good, decent, hardworking American. This guy, you know, he, he goes to a church kind of like this one. He stays out of debt. He works hard to give his family a nice life. But he doesn't want to be stingy either. So he's always, he always makes sure to give 10% to a food bank and to his church. What do you think about this guy? Where do you think he'll end up? Well, I'll tell you, one day he dies and he wakes up in hell. And he looks up and he sees God far off in heaven and he says, God, what am I doing here? I was so responsible with my money and wait a minute, I know that guy up there in heaven. Wasn't that the guy with the mansion and the BMW? How did he get to heaven and I'm down here? Isn't it woe to the rich? And you can imagine God looks down and says, are you really begrudging my generosity? Yeah, I gave this man his wealth. But see, he knew that I gave him his wealth. And what's more, he knew he couldn't impress me just by giving back to me what I had already given to him in the first place. But you, for some reason, you thought I'd be impressed by how you handled your money. And by the way, that's just how you thought about it too, wasn't it? As your money. And all those times you sang the doxology, if you still don't know that I'm the one from whom all blessings flow, then I tell you the truth, you never knew me. My friends, woe to those who are rich in their own eyes, for they will have received their consolation. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, I get it, right? The proverbial rich man can be anyone. I won't let it be me. But no, actually, uh, that was not the point. The point here is not, don't be like the rich man. I hate to break it to you, but by nature, you are the rich man. You are the rich woman. Because you and I are born into this world with a hopeless tendency to be rich in our own eyes. God made us in his image. That means that we are made to find our true value in him. But then along comes God, and he sees us living these lives in this weird orbit, not revolving around him. And it's like God thinks, you know, these people are like jewelers who can't tell a diamond from concrete. I am the most precious, wonderful being imaginable. And these people are finding their value somewhere else. They think they're rich, but I'll tell you the truth, they're deluded. They're like beggars. And it's a bad situation, isn't it? Because we all know we haven't trusted God perfectly. And in one sense, it's too late to start trusting God now. In one sense, it's no good joining the race late. Because our record of trust is already stained. And a holy God does not accept stained records. But then, of course, along comes Jesus. And you know, Jesus is a lot like Lazarus, isn't he? Jesus is poor. He's got no real place to lay his head. And you know, the Pharisees thought Lazarus was stricken by God, 
smitten by him and afflicted? What would they think of Jesus? Lazarus just had open sores, but Jesus' back was opened with a whip. And he's hung on a tree. And the Pharisees knew from reading Deuteronomy that cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. But here is the shock to end all shocks. Because Jesus, who they thought was worse off than Lazarus, when Jesus dies, he doesn't just go to heaven. It turns out Jesus is the king of heaven. Jesus, the man who everyone thought was poorer than Lazarus, when in reality he was as rich as God because he is God. And yet, like we sang, he left behind his glorious throne. Why? So that he can come and trust God perfectly, yet die like an idolatrous money lover. So that money lovers like you and me might be credited with his perfect trust in God. Friends, do you see why the message here is not trust less in your money, trust more in God? How could it be? How in the world would that help you if you find yourself in like a James 2 sort of situation? You know, someone comes in dressed well and you show them preferential treatment over someone who's not dressed so well. That would be favoritism. And the man in the parable got help for that. But what if Jesus comes along and he says, look, I saw that interaction. I know what you just did there. But I'll tell you what. Let's have God look on me as the one who ignored the poor. And instead, God can look on you as someone who spent their whole life caring for outcasts and widows and people with disabilities. How about that? Friends, if you have not taken Jesus up on that offer, what are you waiting for? It is the deal of a lifetime. Because see, it doesn't just free you from the penalty of favoritism. It frees your heart from the power of favoritism. It frees you to go out now and show compassion to the poor. Not out of guilt. Not from pride. But from knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, if you're a member here at West Creek, part of our church covenant is that we will cheerfully and regularly contribute to support the ministry, the needs of the church, and the relief of the poor. My fellow members, I'd invite you to consider whether, whether you know you are doing that, um, as you've determined in your hearts and as God has given you. But more than the mere fact of giving, do you remember why it is that we give in the first place? You know, I think one of the most dangerous places in this church is standing right in front of the donation box. Because you've got your money, you're about to drop it in, and maybe you're feeling guilty. I don't give enough. Or maybe you're feeling proud. Maybe you're thinking, hey, this is a good, good thing I'm about to do here. Friends, let me tell you, Satan would love for you to give your money away if he can trick you into forgetting the gospel at the same time. So how do you remember the gospel at the offering box? You know, can I just tell you humbly what I normally do anytime I'm about to give anything? I just, I pray, God, 
You don't need my money, I know that. It's all from you anyway, I thank you. Here's just a portion back of what you've given me. Is it the right amount? Uh, I don't know. I don't even claim to have 100% pure motives in giving, but be pleased with me, God, I pray. Not because of what I'm giving, but because of what Jesus gave for me. My friends, can you pray that prayer at the offering box? If not, can I just say, I am concerned for you? If that is you, would you come and talk to me? And until then, hear me straight. We do not want you putting a penny in the box. What we want for you is to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The people bound for heaven aren't always who you think. Next point is a little shorter. You can always trust the Bible to tell it like it is. Well, we had been in scene one, the rich man's earthly home, and now scene two, the rich man's eternal home. And of course, we see that it is a split scene, heaven and hell with a chasm in the middle. Now, I said the Bible always tells it like it is, and of course, that's true. The Bible does tell it like it is. But we always need to be careful when we interpret a text to make sure that we are interpreting it according to the genre of the text. Now, a parable is a type of genre. And when it comes to parables, as a rule, parables usually only make one big point. In this parable, Jesus' point is really around the question of what are true riches. That's what he's trying to get across. That's his point. Jesus is really not out to give the Pharisees like a blueprint of heaven and hell, like a, a detailed schematic diagram of exactly how they're laid out. Therefore, there are some details in this parable that we should be careful not to push too far. Um, for example, the rich man yelling across the chasm to Abraham this does not mean that people in heaven and hell can necessarily talk to each other. Uh, no, I think that this is a narrative device that Jesus uses to drive home his larger point. Now that said, this parable does give us some idea of what heaven and hell are like. And we can't spend too long here, but I do think it's worth at least revisiting what the Bible says about what happens after we die. In verse 22, Jesus says, Lazarus has been carried by the angels to what he calls Abraham's side. Abraham's side. Now, Abraham is sometimes known as the father of faith. And the Bible teaches that for those who are made right with God by faith, when they die, they're absent from the body, yes, yet present with the Lord. They're in God's presence. So this place is legitimately called heaven. Abraham says it's a place of comfort in verse 25. And the souls of Christians are kept there in heaven until Jesus returns when they're given a resurrection body. Now, by contrast, in verse 23, Jesus says the rich man is in a place called Hades. Now, Hades is a general term, meaning the place of the dead or the place of departed souls. But clearly for the rich man, this is a place of torment. And therefore, this place is truly called hell. 
If you want to know more about hell, you can go online to our Statement of Faith and you can read the scriptures provided there under the heading, The World to Come. In verse 24, the man says that he's in anguish in the flame. That is accurate. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment in flames. And for the souls who die apart from Christ, they are kept in torment, awaiting final judgment at the end of time when they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. I do not enjoy telling you this. I know this is hard to hear, especially if we've had loved ones who've died apart from Christ. But my friends, do not believe John Lennon for one second. When he tells you to imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us only sky, do not listen to him. Because the word of Hebrews 9 is very clear. It is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment. And once we arrive at our destination, it is fixed. And there's no second chance in hell. You know, for what it's worth, I'm not really convinced that a second chance would have done this rich man that much good anyway. Because look at his attitude in hell. He's still unrepentant. Uh, If you look in verse 24, he calls out to Abraham... But he doesn't regret his idolatry and greed. He just regrets the consequences. It's kind of a worldly grief, isn't it? He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus with the water. Now, first of all, where does he get off calling Abraham father? I mean, Abraham's the father of faith. But if this man were really Abraham's son by faith, then he'd be in heaven. And second... Where does he get off calling for Lazarus? Um, You can imagine Abraham saying something like, Oh, so you know Lazarus by name, do you? That's funny. You never called him by name on earth to come to your table. And now you expect him to be your water boy? I don't think so, no. And in verse 25, Abraham explains the great reversal that's taken place. And then in the next verse, the finality of the situation. But still, the rich man has a high opinion of himself. He still persists in expecting special treatment. First, Abraham, send Lazarus with water. No. Uh, Well, then, Abraham, send him to my father's house. Uh, No, they have Moses and the prophets. No, no, Abraham, do it anyway. (laughs) Can you imagine looking at Abraham in the face and telling him no It is so brazen. And actually, the one thing that people tend to find endearing about this man, the fact that he's supposedly concerned for his family, verses 27 and 28, even this is not as noble as it might seem. Because at least one commentator points out, this is really kind of an insular concern. You know, the rich looking out for the rich, the rich looking out for their own kind. In short, this man's attitude is really no different in hell than it had been on earth. Friends, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, uh, I beg you, learn from the rich man. Because here on earth, the grace of Christ is so freely available. But if you don't turn to God here on earth, where there is grace, 
How in the world would you repent in a place where there is no grace? Today, today, if you hear God's voice, turn to him in Christ, for tomorrow may be too late. And if you'd like to know how to repent, Abraham tells you right there in verses 29 and 31. He says, you've got to listen to Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets, in other words, the written word of God. In the New Testament, we see Paul telling Timothy that it is these sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, the Bible really is enough. Yes. But no, the rich man's not satisfied. Uh, it's like he wants to arrange like a seance or something. Um, like so his brothers can somehow like contact Lazarus in the spirit world. Can I just say incidentally, you know, if you are here today and maybe you're into things like psychics and maybe palm readings and tarot cards, um, maybe if you want to be put in contact with someone from the dead, if you, if you want to be put in contact with someone from the dead, I can do you one better. I'll put you in contact with someone who not only died, but who rose again from the dead. <laughs> you know, forget about your great aunt. It's the Lord Jesus Christ we're talking about. Paul says he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Raised on the third day, and if you trust him, he will raise you up too at the end of time. And you can take that to the bank because the Bible always tells it like it is. You know, my Christian friends, for all intents and purposes, to the lost, you and I are Moses and the prophets. Now, I mean no disrespect by that. I'm just saying what non-Christian usually opens the Bible unless they're prompted by a Christian? My friends, we need to be stewarding not just our money, but also our time and energy, bringing the light of Scripture to people who are in the dark. If you worked in a lighthouse back in the day, I'm sure you turned that light on at night, right, to keep the ships, ships off the reef. And, you know, some of us, we've got that light on, right? We're sounding the foghorn, telling people about the risen Christ. But maybe you're discouraged because you're telling them about Jesus. But what you see, it's like verse 31 lived out right in front of you. Your family and friends won't listen to Moses. Your family and friends won't listen to the prophets. They wouldn't listen even if someone rose from the dead. And you see the irony there in verse 31, right? The foreshadowing. Because, of, of course, someone does rise from the dead. His words are right here in this living book. Don't give up. Because remember, at the end of the day, when it comes to salvation, remember what it says in Romans 9. Salvation ultimately depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we share the gospel, hoping in God that he may yet have mercy. You know, just one final thought. Uh, so often our motivation in sharing the gospel is we want to keep people from hell. Uh, and that's, a, that's good, and that's true. You know, this week I had stuck in my mind sort of a dark version of Amazing Grace. Um, I almost tremble to say it, but 
you know, when they've been there 10,000 years in flames as from the sun, they've no less days within the blaze than when they first begun. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's awful. But remember, the Christian hope is not primarily about avoiding hell. No, the Christian hope is the hope of the resurrection. The hope of beholding Jesus' face. The hope of being made like him. See, he's not just the guy who gets you out of hell. Jesus is the one in whom you were made to find all your riches. It starts now. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's grace, praise, than when we've first begun. That's the promise. And we know it's true because the Bible always tells it like it is. Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Our hearts are poor until we find our riches in you. Father, open our eyes to see the riches of Christ, that in forsaking all else, we would find our all in all in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.